the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. Our phone number is 602-508-0960-602-5080-960. We have David Dahl, our associate producer, manning the uh, helm. And uh, we'll have uh, some interactions with him in a moment. ABC News' headline this morning, in fact, almost everyone's headline this morning, was this. Quote, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who made history as first black woman and first gay person to lead city, loses election bid, close quote. That's not the most important headline about Chicago. More importantly is the Sun-Times headline. I love this, quote, as crimes in Chicago soared, arrests declined, close quote. Crime in Chicago is, after all, nearly 70 percent higher than the national average. Put it all together and you have a complete failure of common sense and common civic understandings and responsibilities. The middle point first, as crime soared, arrests declined. Who writes these headlines? Why not write as exercise declines, health worsened, or as obesity increases, people gained weight, or as people drank more, people got more inebriated? The headline that was actually hard to find, but that mattered in Chicago, wasn't any of the odd spin or series of distractions about Lori Lightfoot's race, gender, or sexual preferences, is that crime increased 35% over the last year and reached unprecedented highs on her watch while she was busy cutting videos of herself dancing, emulating the best modern-day version of Nero fiddling, as far as I can recall in modern times. So there will be no headlines that read this way, quote, Chicago mayor Lori Lightfoot, who made history as the mayor to oversee dramatic and unprecedented rises in crime, loses election bid, close quote. That would be too much of a tribute to the facts on the ground and the purpose of municipal government. Instead, as Lori Lightfoot said when asked yesterday about her loss, asked if she was treated unfairly because of her race and gender, she said, quote, I'm a black woman in America. Of course I was, close quote. This kind of talk worries me, as those headlines worried me. In fact, that's putting it too low. They terrify me, and beyond that, they offend me. And beyond that, taking the solipsism out of this, it should worry, terrify, and offend everyone. We've spoken of this in the context of Kamala Harris when she was running for vice president, and then failing as vice president. It boggles the mind that we are still playing this game or being allowed to. When Joe Biden asked Harris to be his running mate, it was clear why he did that. And it wasn't to ensure the winning of electoral college vote rich California. Joe Biden could have chosen Ron DeSantis' wife and won California as much as he could have chosen Bernie Sanders or his wife and won California. Kamala Harris was a U.S. senator for five years and a state attorney general before she was chosen to run for vice president. That's more office holding and political experience, by the way, than Barack Obama had before he ran for president. And yet, in an odd way, we knew a lot more about Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008 than we did Kamala Harris in 2020, didn't we? 
Now tell me, mention one distinguishing or notable thing about Kamala Harris's A, tenure in the Senate, or B, tenure as California's attorney general. You will come up with very little. In fact, take the test. What was she known for as senator? What was she known for as attorney general? You can't answer the question. We don't know. The answer is nothing. So this tells us Joe Biden chose her as a running mate for something else. Not her skill set, evidently. Not her achievements, evidently. And not because she could deliver California, evidently. Nothing she said, nothing she did. So he must have chosen Kamala Harris for some other reason. Perhaps the post-election headlines from 2020 give us a hint. I'll relate this back to Lori Lightfoot's comments in a moment. Let's run those headlines from November 2020. Quote, Kamala Harris, a role model for, for all generations. Quote, Kamala Harris, serving as a role model for women. Quote, Kamala Harris, a role model and reminder of how far we still have to go. Quote, Kamala Harris is the ultimate role model for young minority women. Quote, Kamala Harris has become a role model for minorities and women. I could go on and on. You get the point. But those are just the first five results over literally thousands of stories on social and legacy media about how Kamala Harris would be or is a role model for women and minorities, she constituting both, as I guess is the same way Lori Lightfoot sees herself, if you also add in that she calls herself a lesbian. The temptation is to let this pass, shrug your shoulders, be polite about it, and make no comment. But for those of us that actually care about equality and achievement, for those of us that actually care about minority equality and achievement, we cannot let this pass. To select or appoint or elect or admit or give a job or promotion to someone based on nothing they had control over or nothing they did other than be born a certain way is to say, so to voce, because of that attribute, gender, race, you name it, they are good. They are qualified. They are very good. They are very qualified. The immutable characteristic that takes no volition except from God is designated as an achievement or a positive. Because of your race and gender, you are ipso qualified or even better, more qualified or most qualified. But let's run this syllogism down a bit, shall we? If you are good or great or more qualified because of your race or gender, someone must be less so because of their race or gender. That's one way to go. That gets you to a phrase at the heart of the old 1970s Bakke decision, what was once called reverse racism. The civil rights establishment voided that phrase because it was inconvenient, so we speak no longer of that problem. Though it remains unsolved, just ask the Asian students suing Harvard and the University of North Carolina in the Supreme Court right now. The other way to go is that by dint of your race or gender, you are ipso facto qualified or more qualified than anyone else. For a while, the left did try to say this quiet part out loud with the word diversity. But that stopped working, so it was troubled down upon. Now we have diversity, inclusion, and equity. But whatever you call it, this is what it boils down to. If you are X, you are qualified for A through Z. Or there's yet another door. Qualifications don't matter, which means, of course, quality doesn't matter, which means competence doesn't matter. But that would lead to the conclusion that the job doesn't matter, and nobody seems to want to admit that, right? So Kamala Harris is X and Lori Lightfoot is X. 
and their successes are reliant upon it. And when they fail, it's because of that X. But nobody who thinks they were qualified to be vice president or, for that matter, attorney general or senator or mayor because of X, interestingly enough, also thinks Condi Rice, who is X, is better than Kamala Harris or Lori Lightfoot or even quite as good. Just ask the ladies of The View, where one of the Caucasian women on that show tried to lecture and explain civil rights to Dr. Condoleezza Rice, a Ph.D.-attaining Senate-confirmed federal cabinet member who watched her friends get killed in a racist church bombing in her hometown of Birmingham. It dawns on me that there are a lot of exes in society. K. Cole James, the former president of the Heritage Foundation, was a black woman. Winsome Sears is a black woman, too. There are a lot of black women. Candace Owens is a black woman. But Rice, James, Sears, Owens, and a whole lot more were never presented to the public of young exes to be role models, glass ceiling breakers, or anything like that. They were to be mocked, diminished, lectured to, or simply ignored. Ever watch that movie titled W about George Bush, played by Barbara Streisand's husband? Dr. Rice is depicted as nothing more than a secretary, not of state, but of a clerical nature. Good for dialing people up on the phone and taking notes for the president, not much else. But now an ineffable problem seems to arise. What if just by chance the person who is X and relied on that X for her qualifications is a failure, is incompetent, does not appreciate the heft of their job or the impact it has on fellow Americans or fellow Chicagoans? I raise this as two stories converge. The vice president has hired two image consultants, and her poll numbers have gone down, lower than Dick Cheney's, the most unpopular vice president until now. And Lori Lightfoot has been massively defeated, defeated in her own bid for re-election. One could say, well, large percentages of the American people or Chicago have no idea what they are talking about, and that Kamala Harris has succeeded at everything she's been tasked with, starting with the border just as Lori Lightfoot has succeeded in running that toddling town. So instead we get the old razzle-dazzle, as Billy Flynn put it. The problem is this. Kamala Harris is, in fact, not succeeding at anything, just as Lori Lightfoot did not. So it presents the problem we asked about above. If your race and gender are your qualifications, what is to be said about you, your race, or your gender when you fail? And does that set back or propel forward the cause of civil and gender rights? Some years ago, Shelby Steele wrote the following about these race and gender based policies. They solidify more racism, raising the specter of the stigma of questionable competence, his phrase. He put it this way. I'm quoting him directly. I don't think racial preferences are a protection against subtle discrimination. I think they contribute to it. In any workplace, racial preferences will always create two-tiered populations and co composed of preferreds and unpreferreds. In the case of blacks and whites, for instance, racial preferences imply that whites are superior just as they imply that blacks are inferior. They not only reinforce America's oldest racial myths, but for blacks they have the effect of stigmatizing the already stigmatized. He goes on, quote, I think that much of the subtle discrimination that blacks talk about is often not always discrimination against the stigma of questionable competence that affirmative action marks blacks with. In this sense, preferences make scapegoats of the very people they seek to help. 
And it may be that at a certain level, employers impose a glass ceiling, but this may not be against the race so much as against the race's reputation for having advanced by color as much as by competence. The ceiling is the point at which corporations shift the emphasis from color to competency and stop playing the affirmative action game. Here, preference backfires for blacks and becomes a taint that holds them back. He goes on, quote, of course, one could argue that this taint, which is, after all, in the minds of whites, becomes nothing more than an excuse to discriminate against blacks. And certainly the result is the same in either case. Blacks don't get past the glass ceiling. But this argument does not get around the fact that racial preferences now taint this color with a new theme of suspicion that makes blacks even more vulnerable to discrimination. In this crucial yet gray area of perceived competence, preferences make whites look better than they are and blacks worse while doing nothing whatever to stop the very real discrimination that blacks may encounter. I don't wish to justify the glass ceiling here, but only suggest the very subtle ways that affirmative action revives rather than extinguishes the old rationalizations for it. He concludes, preferential treatment does not teach skills or educate or instill motivation. It only passes out entitlement by color, close quote. We might add, or gender. What Professor Steele is saying is that there's really a bad joke taking place in all this thinking, and it reinforces the idea that someone achieved because of their color or gender, not because of their competence or their character. That, once upon a time, energized every single person calling themselves a civil rights activist to activate. So here we arrive. Once the entitlement is achieved and the person received that entitlement because of her race or gender and then fails, what is to be said? A hugely successful black female vice president is a phrase any one of us would wish to say. Nobody would ever say the opposite. It's racism to talk of people like that. After all, when used by the wrong perspective, words we are told constitute violence. Right now, I'm a little more worried about the violence of Russia, China, and flowing into the U.S. via our borders and through our major cities like Chicago. Those, we are told, not to pay pay any attention to, just like Kamala Harris told us not to pay attention to the words she used in a debate when she told Stephen Colbert that was just as a bait when he asked her how she could work for Joe Biden after calling him a racist. Just words, just a debate, didn't really mean anything doesn't matter. You know what all this means? Words, just like Kamala Harris and just like Lori Lightfoot, have lost all their meaning, all their import. And you know what that means? The race and gender conscious effort of the day has just used Kamala Harris and Lori Lightfoot to set back civil rights. Or as they say, Kamala Harris and Lori Lightfoot have turned the clock of civil rights back because of the very way they succeeded and were praised and then failed. Our major cities, like our country, should be castles. But when they are built on sand, great is the fall. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Something tells me, David, you like my music, my bumper music, a little more than Bill. Am I, oh yeah. Am I right about that? I have one more to think I want to come back to you in a minute, David. One more thing to say about this uh, race game that Lori Lightfoot is playing footsie with. It's toxic. Charles Blow in the New York Times had a column on her today, and uh, she, he went to Chicago to interview her, and she was complaining about 
the man who did prevail, or at least came in first of, 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 of two, and will be in the runoff, Paul Vallis. Paul Vallis is a name I've known for many, many years. He uh, used to run the Chicago Public Schools and did a pretty good job back in the 90s, uh, so much so that I remember a lot of people were recommending he become Secretary of Education under Barack Obama uh, and maybe even Bill Clinton. Um, it wasn't to be. But she told, Lori Lightfoot told Charles Blow, you've got people who are using my race as a cudgel against me every single day. You've got the only white candidate in the race who's acting like he's going to be a great white savior on public safety. He tells the crowds his whole campaign is about taking back our city, pure and simple. Those are dog whistles. He's giving voice and platform to people who are hateful of anyone who isn't white and Republican. Dog whistles. That's kind of like implicit bias. When you can't find the racism, you say you can't hear it, but it's there. Problem is factual when she says hateful to anyone who isn't a Republican. He's not a Republican. Paul Vallis is a lifelong Democrat, worked for Mayor Daley at one point. So it's just a factual error on her part. But the notion that when he talks about taking back our city, when he's talking about crime, that that's a racist dog whistle is absurd. Who are the victims? Who are the primary victims of crime in Chicago? I'll tell you right now, 80% of the homicides are black victims. 80% are black victims. How is it a white dog whistle to say you want to save black lives, to say you want to save a problem, 80% of which constitutes the victimization of members of the minority population. This woman is a scourge. This woman had no business. This person had no business running the country or running her mouth. I hope she goes away. I really hope she goes away, and I hope we can get back to fixing the city of Chicago. Sometimes these places get so far run down, they're almost unsolvable. But nothing really is unsolvable. It just takes a really strong hand. And if Paul Vallis prevails, I don't know if his hand will be strong enough. Some cities were rescued. Goldsmith rescued Indianapolis. At one point, Giuliani rescued New York City. Some of them are very far gone. Very far gone. And these city governments can be very institutionalized and bureaucratic. People think of the big federal government and the bureaucracies and the deep states within those. There are deep states within every bureaucracy and every level of government, state, local. I remember when we were talking Tenth Amendment stuff when I was in Washington, more and more power to the states throughout the mid to late 90s. Valuable point, important to do, but the thing I always spoke about that no one in the rooms, these conservative rooms, wanted to hear is just turning it back to the states ain't going to solve the problem. Those states, those state bureaucracies, what makes you think they're any less entrenched or any less difficult to penetrate than federal bureaucracies? All of these things need to be fixed, root and branch. It's not where it's located. It's that they have been allowed to be run by a progressive elite that honeycombs them with their own direct, straight thinking that 
doesn't allow for any reform whatsoever. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website where you can reach him and spend some time getting to know the company a little bit is GrandCanyonPlanning.com. He is also the host of his own radio show, heard right here every Saturday morning, bright and early at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. How are you today, John? Fantastic, Seth. It's nice to hear your voice again, of course. Thank you. You betcha. Talk to me about what we're learning about the U.S. labor market showing signs of cooling. This doesn't look good. Well, it, it you're right again. It's again we go back to that good news is bad news yeah. and bad news is good news. Right. Um, the um, you know idea of raising rates over time. The Fed officials have been raising rates, as we know, uh, in in an attempt to slow down the economy to bring uh, inflation under control. And part of that is always jobs is, is, is part of a sign that the economy is slowing, right? We're, we've started to see some of the big major companies do their, their labor cuts in uh, large quantities, you know, some of the reduction in force that we're seeing. But this is starting to indicate that we may start to see this trickling down even further to uh, smaller companies as well. Uh, when they look at the available jobs in December at 11 million, which was 57 percent above levels in February of 2020, right, right before COVID hit. So we're starting to uh, see uh, those numbers dropping, which is giving the idea that, hey, what the Fed is doing is is slowing down the economy, is uh, creating uh, a little uh, trouble for the jobs market, which is what they're trying to do. And it's, it's a disruption that uh, it's kind of counterintuitive to everything as Americans we think of, right? We want as many people in the workforce as possible because we know there's a shortage uh, of people. Uh, so uh, generally speaking, though, it, it kind of goes in line with, uh, I think, for me anyway, that what the Fed has been doing, they're tr- they're, they are seem they seem to be hitting some of those targets that they're trying to hit. Maybe this will be a little bit of an indication that uh, the Fed won't be as aggressive in the next rate hike. You know, that's a possibility. One of the things that strikes me as a little bit odd here is how busy-bodied the Fed is on this sort of thing. The Fed is trying to slow the labor market, the story in the Wall Street Journal says. Mm -hmm. It has been raising short-term interest rates to cool household and business spending, which Fed officials hope will reduce labor demand and inflation. Mm -hmm. That just sounds worrisome to me, that they are deliberately trying to slow Uh, the labor market to attack. Doesn't that kind of rub you the wrong way a little bit? That's what I said. It's counterintuitive of of, of what what it is to be an American, right? We're trying to always excel and excel and do better and do better. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess uh, sometimes you take a pause and you look back and see, uh, you know, maybe predicting what is in store for a future. I mean, if you looked at it from a business perspective, um, businesses oftentimes may let people go because, uh, you know, things are slowing down. And right. then as things again begin to uh, pick up, they'll start that rehiring process. Uh, but, I agree with you, Seth. I just hate the notion yeah, that the government thinks that's its job. I, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, it, when we look at what's happening with the market and yeah. how this is affecting the markets, yeah. uh, the markets have been relatively um, – I wouldn't say that we've seen really a tremendous amount of volatility. We've seen a little elevated volatility over the past couple of weeks in the market. Yeah. But every time that that market pu- has a little bit of a pullback, we haven't seen any really, really severe pullbacks. Um, happening, which to me says that there's still some support uh, for stocks right now, and we haven't really uh, hit a level to where I think we're going to go back to where we 
we were last year. So um, I think I'm not saying it's a green light right, right now, but I am saying that there definitely is some uh, stability there for the markets at the moment. We're open for businesses, what they're yeah, telling us. Yeah, I think That's so. That's kind of how I read it. Yeah, and we're still seeing a tremendous amount of money going into the markets, of course, through 401ks. Uh, even though we do see, uh, I read a report, uh, Fidelity report, that talked about the average 401k in 2022 dropped by 23%. Mm-hmm. That's a big number. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that wasn't the norm for the past couple of years. So people are obviously going to be concerned about that. Uh, but again, remember, if you're investing in your 401k, you're contributing uh, on, an, on a, you know, maybe a buy buy weekly type of a scenario uh-huh. and you're buying into the market at a lower value today and but there might be a reason for you to take a closer look at what those investments are if you're working with an advisor uh, for them to look at those and help you make some educated choices uh, within the 401k to minimize some of the downside risk and take advantage of a recovery that's what we do for our clients yeah i was going to say you're the advisor they should be talking yeah. to thank you john all right now our website grandcanyonplanning.com you can request an appointment there securities and advisory services offered through creative one securities llc a member of finrit sipic and investment advisor grand canyon planning associates llc and creative one securities llc are not affiliated you're the best man thank, thank you, you. Seth. you betcha Bye-bye. show as is usual for us on wednesdays we are joined by brett johnson a partner at the law firm of snell and wilmer swlaw.com he is our constitutional expert i have been looking forward to this interview all day brett do you want to <laughs> know why do you want to know why because you love school and you had a lot of student debt no no <laughs> well both of those things are true but that is not why I woke up this morning knowing, as you and I were going to discuss what case we were going to analyze today, that I would be able to quote Youngstown Sheet and Metal v. Sawyer, that when the president takes measures incompatible with the expressed or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. And for the president to claim to a power at once so conclusive and preclusive must be scrutinized with caution. I was dying to do this all day. That's the geek I am. (laughs) <laughs> and, and very well done. Thank you, that, sir. That's, that's good. Um, that must have brought you back to some flashbacks, first year of law school. Flashbacks or, or, or fla- flashbacks yeah. or flash forwards, I'm not sure. Tell us what's going on. <laughs> Give us the tour. Get us up to 1952 and since. What happened yesterday? That, that sounds good. Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been for this court. Um, it, it's, uh, it's kind of going back to Robert's court. Robert's kind of, kind of criticized. Uh, for the last year of not not really being on uh, some more of his conservative type uh, bent and was siding with uh, the liberal side of the court. But uh, yesterday he came out swinging on on these two cases. So the first one is is Biden versus Nebraska. Um, The second case they heard was uh, Department of Education versus Brown. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that it's always like, you know, Board of Education versus Brown, Brown versus Education? It's just kind of interesting how it works out. Um, But but in these two cases... I think they look for that, by the way, don't you? I I think there's someone clever saying, let's get it named this way. Don't you think so? That's exactly right. So someone can say, well, I argued Brown v. Board of Education. That's right. (laughs) Or they can say, listen, you know, the last time this type of case came before you was an equal protection case. So um, in in this context, though, it was was a student debt. And as we all know, President Biden, towards the end of COVID, 
uh, worked with the Department of Education to agree to waive um, about a half trillion amount of student debt. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, several states brought actions, um, as well as these two individuals. The, the, the states brought the action because of uh, two major, major doctrines. One's called the Major Questions Doctrine. There's another one that's kind of the Non-Delegation Doctrine. We'll talk about that. But the, but the court was really more concerned with the Major Questions Doctrine, especially Chief Justice Roberts, because that has been one of uh, one of the doctrines that he's wanted to push, and it basically stands for this concept. When there's such a political or economic factor at issue that the uh, executive agencies can't basically legislate, those, those decisions, those policy decisions have to be made by the representatives of the people in Congress. And when you're wiping out a half a trillion dollars worth of debt, that is of such economic consequence yeah. that you have to get congressional approval to do so. Well, but Biden and his administration is pointing to what we call the HEROES Act. It was after 9-11. And basically, Basically, in a, in a case of an emergency, the Department of Education has the ability to, and this is key, wave or modify. That's right, wave or loans, modify. Uh huh. Wave or modify student loans. To, and this is something that wasn't really discussed too much yesterday. I, I was shocked at to put the borrower back in the position they were in before right. the emergency. Right. Also very key, so it's going to be interesting to see how this is written. What, what Chief Justice Roberts basically was concentrating was on modifying, mm-hmm. and what the court uh, did, or what the Congress did not give the power to do was to cancel or forgive. Right. So can you modify or waive to such a degree where the loan is actually being um, forgiven or canceled, mm-hmm. and and Chief Justice Roberts had some concerns on that. Interesting, Chief uh, Chief or not Chief, I just promoted him. Justice Kavanaugh really said, "Hey, that that waiver is pretty broad," but he was he was stopping short of siding with the liberal side of the court, which basically was saying, um, "You you you have full carte blanche on this because it's within the Department of Education, and you're able to cite to the Heroes Act." Um, to be able to do it. It's going to be a very, very interesting um, case that goes well beyond the student debt because, again, it's the court pushing back on the executive and infringing on the legislature, the Congress's mm-hmm. powers. So interesting times. It was interesting if I saw some of the oral argument. I did see some of the oral argument, but if I caught it in its completeness, it's kind of interesting that Justice Kagan was trying to make the argument that Congress did give them this authority, right? Even Correct. though it but but it's a it's a really interesting reading of how she gets there because it's quite clear to me that the original Heroes Act had never contemplated such a thing. I think that argument is just weird. I think it was weird, too, and that's why I was very uh, concerned that nobody was really talking about the not worse off yeah. before the emergency, yeah. which makes sense, right? You have a flood. You're not able to um, to make your student loan payments. Okay, well, you know what? We're going to waive the interest over that period of time, maybe give you a little bit of a deferment. Right. Heck, when I was in the military, I got a student deferment. Sure. Only reason I had to get out of the military was because I had a ton of student debt that I had yeah. to pay off. Yeah. So, And that's where I think one of the ones that Chief uh, Justice Roberts kept on pointing out is, is that people are making choices to go take out these mm-hmm. student loans, mm-hmm. whereas other people, tradespeople primarily, or in, in his uh, uh, equation, was a gardener who yeah. basically takes out a loan to start a business instead of going to college. Mm-hmm. Well, that individual who had to go through COVID, he didn't get his loans right. uh, um, eliminated. Right. So basically, because of these choices that people who went to school and maybe got some degrees they they regret or didn't get the degree, degree that they regret, um, you know, yeah, are, are getting 
some <laughs> sort of benefit in this process. So although not an equal protection type argument by any means, it did fall into the major's question, major question doctrine because of that economic inequality that was just part of what Biden was doing. You know, the other thank you for that, Brett. The other thing yeah. I kind of thought interesting was how much protest there was in front of the Supreme Court on this issue, how loud the voices were, how political, uh, how, how many political leaders got up in front of the Supreme Court to hold rallies and shout about this, almost as if it was like an abortion rights case. I was a little surprised by the energy that this this pushed. I don't know if you were. I, I, I'm not surprised because well before COVID, the whole concept of higher education yeah. and loans yeah. has been a major, major issue, especially some inequities where you know, you're getting a degree, that you're taking out these major loans that you're no longer not able to really use in the workforce. Mm-hmm. And that has been, you know, the articles that I've read on this topic, the amount of how much higher education costs from even when you and I went to school yeah. has just, you know, ballooned. Yeah. So that's why I think people feel passionate about it from from that other perspective is because they see it as an equity issue and that this is for the good the good of people that they're getting that education i don't necessarily disagree that it's good for people to get education whatever that education may be Um, but i just don't know if how the court's going to feel about waiving a half a trillion dollars worth of debt yeah i mean if i can i mean it was i I was thinking you're right and i'm thinking you know uh (laughs) the old line uh richard uh Richard Rich Wright, but for Wales, but for Harvard, these protests, you know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Brett, you're, you're great. Thank you, sir. No problem. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Brett Johnson, partner at Snell & Wilmer, based here in Phoenix, offices around the country, our constitutional election uh, authority. We call him the Robert Jackson Chair of uh, Legal, inter- of, uh, legal in- uh, Education here at the Seth Liebson Show in that uh, that that quote I used for from uh, 1952, the Sawyer case, Youngstown Sheet and Metal, was one of the famous concurrences by the very same Robert Jackson. All right, I'm Seth, and we'll be right back. Y'all probably have been hearing me talk about why refi for a while now, and if you still have some questions about what it could mean to invest with them, they would love it if you would give them a ring. They'll happily put you in touch with any number of their many satisfied clients and customers in the Phoenix area who have invested with them and done very well. Their number is 888-YREFI-34. And they'd like me to ask you how your IRA is doing as well. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com or, again, 888-YREFI-34. David, did you know that reference? Do you, have you ever seen a man for all seasons? I have not. Okay. Since you refuse to see Jaws. I, I will. It's, it's on the list. Which stars Robert Shaw, among Great others. Guy. Maybe you would watch A Man for All Seasons, which stars Robert Shaw as well. It's a great cast. It's a great cast. It's Robert Shaw. It's Orson Welles. You would love that movie, Man for All Seasons. I will watch it. You would like that. And you'd like A Lion in Winter which I kind of think of it a little bit like as well. Catherine Hepburn. It, oh, gosh. Watch those two movies and watch Jaws, please. 
Yes, sir. I'm begging you. Okay. You will get more quotes out of A Man for All Seasons than you will probably, well, that and Jaws, maybe, than any other movie you'll see, I'm guessing. That's actually an interesting trivia question. What movies have the most amount of memorable and remembered quotes? I bet The Godfather's up there. Well, The Godfather is considered by many to be the greatest film of all time. Yeah. Alongside up there with Citizen Kane. That Yeah, that's a lie, speaking of Orson Welles. Citizen Kane is not a great movie. It's lackluster. It's interesting. It's that, totally um, lackluster. What? It's totally lackluster. You, that's the right word. You said it right. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that when he made it, Orson Welles uh, considered The Magnificent Ambersons, which came after Citizen Kane, to yeah. be much better than Citizen Kane, but the rest of the public did not. I know. I know. They just it, – it's just uh, Vox uh, Populi, Vox Dei, I guess. The voice of the population is the voice of God. But I just think it's a massively overrated movie. Uh, whereas Man for All Seasons is a massively underrated movie, as is A Lion in Winter, as is Jaws. But that'd be interesting. Audience might have something to say about what movies have the most popular quotes from them. Godfather. It might be Godfather. It might be worth calling in. It might be worth calling in. All right, we'll take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 